it's a busy place, you know. But that's what I like about it. I like, I like being busy. <laughs> My name is Anna Tavares. I'm a registered nurse in the operating room. I come into work, uh, check the board, see where I'm headed, and then I'm off. It could be, you know, vascular, neurology, um, pediatrics, like, you know, whatever it is, I just go. I'm just crazy, naturally. <laughs> <laughs> I, I feel like this is a great place to work. You know, it's a learning experience. You're able to grow here. Tonight on Rhode Island PBS Weekly. Juro Synagogue is a national historic site and a national treasure. It's also the focus of a bitter dispute. You are trying to evict them? What we need to do is have a regime change, and that is true. For Rabbi Mark Mandel and his congregation Jesuit Israel, it's an unsettling time. The rabbi hopes he won't have to lead his congregation on an exodus from Turo Synagogue. Is there wisdom in the Torah that helps you get through this period of in uncertainty? <laughs> There's always wisdom in the Torah that helps me every day. A tiny fragment with the potential to turn Christianity on its head. There is this public conception in sort of centuries of tradition that Jesus was a celibate bachelor. If you ask a man on the street, woman on the street, that's what they'll tell you. Jesus didn't, didn't have a wife. But if you actually look at the New Testament itself, it doesn't say anything about whether Jesus was married. It doesn't say he was married, but it also doesn't say he was unmarried. Welcome to Rhode Island PBS Weekly. I'm Pamela Watts. Michelle San Miguel is on maternity leave for the next few months, and we want to welcome David Wright, who will be filling in for her. And David, wonderful to have you here. Delighted to be here, Pamela. Looking forward to working together. Our first story tonight is about a long-standing tug of war over an historic Rhode Island building. The dispute between landlord and tenant has already gone all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court and back. It's a thorny issue because the building is Turo Synagogue in Newport, a symbol of the Ocean State's long heritage of religious freedom. Now the Orthodox congregation that has worshipped there for more than 100 years is facing eviction. All right. In a Newport courtroom, a real estate battle making history, not headlines. Folks, we're going to stop back up again. Anyone has a cell phone on history because of the building at issue. This one, the oldest synagogue in North America, dedicated in 1763. Turo Synagogue is a national historic site and a national treasure. It's also the focus of a bitter dispute. You are trying to evict them? What we need to do is have a regime change, and that is true. Louis Solomon is president of Congregation Sherith Israel of New York, the oldest Jewish congregation in America, the landlord. The tenant, for more than a century, is Congregation Jesuit Israel of Newport. Louise Ellen Tights is their president. Sherith Israel did indeed file an eviction action, and it was filed to evict Congregation Jesuit Israel. I suppose family feuds are inevitable. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's a lovely way to describe it. The relationship between these two Orthodox congregations was first formalized in this lease, signed in 1903, at the annual rent of $1 due on the 1st of February. 
Five generations of Michael Pimentel's family have worshipped at Turo Synagogue. It's been a challenging time for the congregation in terms of the eviction filing and sort of the feeling of perhaps being thrown out of our religious home that we've occupied for, you know, 130 plus years. Turo Synagogue is a testament to Rhode Island's colonial heritage as a bastion of religious freedom, part of Roger Williams' legacy. Also, a century later, when America's founding fathers were still debating the Bill of Rights, it was an important reminder to protect religious liberty. George Washington visited Newport in 1790. The Newport Synagogue wrote to him, thanking God for creating a government which to bigotry gives no sanction, to persecution no assistance. In his reply, Washington echoed that language, adding his own fervent wish that Jews should enjoy continued prosperity and peace in the United States. It's probably one of the most important Jewish places of worship. At the end of the day, the Jews are not about places. At the end of the day, the Jews are people of the book. Our place in Jerusalem was burned down, was 2,000 years ago. We've been wandering a whole lot since. So I don't want to overestimate, overstate the importance of place. But in the history of American Judaism, it's a very important place. The building is architecturally significant, too. Designed by Peter Harrison, who's credited with bringing the Palladian style to the colonies. His other projects include the Redwood Library in Newport, Christ Church in Cambridge, King's Chapel in Boston, and St. Paul's Chapel in Lower Manhattan. Like those other buildings, it's not just a museum, not just a part of the past. It's also an active place in the local community. Yes, it's a Peter Harrison classic. Yes, it's where the Washington letter is associated with. But more importantly, it's integrated into the, the history of the local Newport Jewish congregation and, and more broadly the Jewish Rhode Island community. That Rhode Island Jewish community has had ups and downs. In the early part of the 19th century, the Jewish population in Newport dwindled and eventually died. When the last person left, everything was sent to Sherith Israel, and it was sent there for safekeeping until a new community came back. The Newport building sat empty for decades, a relic that inspired Victorian poets. Henry Wadsworth Longfellow wrote that the ancient tombstones in Newport's Jewish cemetery seem like the tablets of the law thrown down and broken by Moses at the mountain's base. The synagogue lay empty for about 80 years. And then in the, the 1880s, Newport had a Jewish population that was largely coming from Eastern Europe and Russia and the synagogue was reopened then and Congregation Jesuit Israel was established in 1894. We really have used it all the time. There are people here who have grown up here whose grandparents worshipped here like mine. I was married in this synagogue. I sit where my mother used to sit. My cousin Rita Sloan sits next to me. She was the first woman 
president of the congregation. Both sides agree it's really over the past 10 years or so that the relationship soured. The feud started in 2012 when the Newporters tried to sell a set of valuable silver bells called Rimonim, cast by a Jewish colonial silversmith who was a contemporary of Paul Revere. The New Yorkers objected. The Newporters pushed back. The path that probably started all of the sort of disagreement between the two parties was a really righteous thing. We were looking to endow in perpetuity a living, breathing congregation with a rabbi in residence. And instead you were accused of selling something that doesn't belong to you. Correct. Congregation Jesuit Israel believed it had a legal claim to the building and its contents. When the building was built, um, at that time, churches and synagogues couldn't be incorporated. So in fact, there's some churches in Providence that are this way as well. Somebody would buy the land and they would technically own the land. And what three people bought the land for this and the last one who was living, Rivera, in his will said, I give this to be held in trust for the Jewish Society or Hebrew Society of Newport, I've forgotten which one, forever. And does the Hebrew Society of Newport still exist? Well, it depends what you think that is. The U.S. District Court in Rhode Island was sympathetic to the Newporters' claim, but that decision did not stand up on appeal. The opinion, written by Justice David Souter, who retired from the U.S. Supreme Court shortly after President Obama took office. As a retired justice, Souter regularly hears cases by designation for the First Circuit Court of Appeals in Boston. In an opinion he wrote for the First Circuit in 2016, Justice Souter found that Congregation Jesuit Israel is a holdover tenant, essentially a tenant who remains on a property after the lease has expired. The legal battle over the synagogue went all the way to the highest court in the land. The U.S. Supreme Court declined to hear the case in 2019, leaving intact Justice Souter's opinion for the Court of Appeals that the New York congregation owns the synagogue and the Newport congregation are merely tenants. Now, it's a landlord-tenant dispute being heard here in the district court in Newport. It's not a simple David versus Goliath fight. There's a lot of bad blood. For instance, Congregation Jesuit Israel gave permission to one of its benefactors to be buried in the historic Jewish cemetery, which has been closed for nearly 200 years. The benefactor took them up on it a lot sooner than expected. We were as surprised as Sheriff Israel when they brought a crane and lowered the actual monument. Normally a gravestone doesn't go in until the person has passed away. And, and he's still alive, right? Yes, and we hope he won't need his gravestone for many, many years to come. That's a sacred place, okay? And I knew nothing about what they were doing there until I saw some picture that came over the wire and a congregant of theirs called me and said, you're not gonna believe this. There's a crane at this, at this sacred little little cemetery, and they're putting a new, like, thing in there. The monument has since been removed, but in terms of trust and goodwill, damage done. We are going to have a new congregation, a Newport, Rhode Island congregation, who is going to become the new tenant, okay? The people who are worshiping there are going to all remain the same, but the rabbi, if he wishes, can stay 
if he wishes. If he doesn't want to, then we'll find another rabbi. But this idea that, that you know, your landlord kicks you out and so you don't have the space anymore, that's a misnomer. That's not what's happening. Okay? What we're talking about are a few people who run Jesuit Israel. We think they are no longer doing that in the best interests of Turo Synagogue. From a Rhode Island standpoint, it's tempting to look at this as here you've got this group that's been in place for a good long time. Modest little synagogue uh, congregation who've been worshiping in this historic place. And here the big bad absentee landlord in New York is coming to swoop in and kick them out. Is that wrong? It is, it is wrong. It is wrong. Why don't, why don't you think about it in, in a different way? When there was nobody here, we took care of the place. We have kept our stewardship over this place, so they feel very close to the Newport Synagogue, and we respect that. We also feel very close to it, and we're not going to let bad things happen to it because a minority of the people who are there worshiping now don't want to actually follow what the judge said three years ago. For Rabbi Mark Mandel and his congregation, Jesuit Israel, it's an unsettling time. The rabbi gave me a tour of the historic synagogue, including its most precious treasure, a 500-year-old Torah scroll written on deerskin. So this is older than the synagogue? Oh, yes, several hundred years. They keep it open to the passage about Moses parting the Red Sea during the Exodus, the calligraphy there underscoring that message. So it looks like an ocean there, so to speak, with people going in between. The rabbi hopes he won't have to lead his congregation on an exodus from Turo Synagogue. Is there wisdom in the Torah that helps you get through this period of in uncertainty? There's always wisdom in the Torah that helps me every day, get me through everything. You have faith? Yes. Like the Jews in the desert made it to the promised land that we'll be able to do the same. The leaders of the New York congregation have invited some of their Newport counterparts down to the city to celebrate Shabbat with them in the middle of next month. But then the two sides are due back in court May 23rd. This week, people of the Jewish faith are celebrating Passover. For Christians, it's the celebration of the resurrection of Jesus on this Easter Sunday. Most of what we know about Christ comes from the four Gospels. But nine years ago, a Harvard professor called some of that into question with the discovery of what she said was an ancient piece of text, a papyrus, that suggested Jesus may have been married to Mary Magdalene. I mean, even symbolically, um, it's fascinating because you have Harvard, which is, is sort of the embodiment of reason, right, with a capital R. Um, you know, it's, it's the richest and most powerful university uh, in the world, um, dropping a bomb at the doorstep of faith, uh, you know, at, the, at the foot of the Catholic Church, which is the richest and most powerful religious organization in the world. A bombshell announcement in 2012 that threatened to shake up Christianity and the role of women in the church. Was Jesus a married man? And did a tattered fragment hold the answer? On a tiny piece of papyrus, you have, you have um, the, these explosives, essentially, that, 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 that uh, throw into doubt two central traditions of Catholicism. Ariel Sabar was the only journalist in the room nine years ago when Harvard Divinity School professor Karen King told religious scholars what she claimed to know about the papyrus 
while they were attending a conference in Rome. She is the holder of the oldest endowed professorship in North America in any subject, you know, very esteemed. And she's about to tell her colleagues um, that essentially everything that ancient history has told us about Jesus' marital status uh, may be in doubt. King, a historian of early Christianity, had identified a business card-sized fragment that she said alluded to Jesus having a wife. The tiny scrap of papyrus would make headlines around the world, including the front page of the Boston Globe and the New York Times. Many were left wondering, had Professor King uncovered a missing piece of the Bible? And then Jesus said to his disciples, my wife. Uh, and in the next sentence, he says, she is able to be my disciple. King soon made the media rounds, explaining, as she would maintain for the next four years, the significance of the papyrus. It was written in Coptic, the language of Egypt's early Christians. So she pieces together this story in these eight lines uh, of Coptic. And in, in her telling, um, this is a scene in which Jesus and the disciples are having a discussion over the qualifications of Mary Magdalene to be his disciple. It also made for late night fodder, even among practicing Catholics like Stephen Colbert. Hey, what a catch, right ladies? It is so hard to find a nice Jewish boy, let alone the nicest Jewish boy. And his dad, super well connected. He knows everybody. The Vatican, though, wasn't laughing. It dismissed the fragment as inept forgery. And while priests were allowed to marry up until the 12th century, Sabar says the papyrus challenged the modern, entrenched framework of Catholicism. Priests take a, take a vow of chastity and make a promise of celibacy um, uh, in imitation of a supposedly wifeless Jesus. Um, the Roman Catholic Church does not ordain women priests because, in, in the view of their theologians, Jesus never chose women for his innermost circle. King called it the gospel of Jesus' wife, even though she pointed out there was no historical evidence of a married Jesus. Karen King was, was careful when she was presenting this to the media and to the public to say, this is not biography. However, one of the things that struck a lot of scholars and one of the areas of pushback in that presentation um, in Rome when I went to interview sort of scholars afterwards um, was the name she chose for it, um, the gospel of Jesus's wife. And it, it, if your idea is that you want to be very careful about sort of presenting this in a nuanced way, not to suggest that the actual Jesus was married, um, why do you choose an, a, a title for it that is, is sort of ready-made for the headlines and ready-made for Hollywood in, in many ways? The title wasn't the only source of doubt. Sabar says King summoned a powerful narrative from some 30 words in the middle of a random page. So, you know, think of like if, you know, uh, every single copy of Huckleberry Finn or Pride and Prejudice were completely erased from human history, and the only thing that survived was like a small uh, fragment of text cut from the center of some unknown page. How much would you be able to tell about the larger work? Important questions about the papyrus's authenticity remained. Religious scholars noticed the Coptic handwriting was messy and odd grammatical errors plagued the text. Plus, the origins of the so-called papyrus remained a mystery to the public. 
Sabar investigated and found it was owned by a man in Florida named Walter Fritz. Then, nearly four years after making her big announcement, King made a dramatic shift. Well, she, she agreed that the, what I discovered about Walter Fritz, combined with all the other evidence, finally tipped the scales in favor of it being a forgery. All the rest of her field had already moved to the camp of it was fake, but it was an important moment when Karen King herself said, oh gosh, okay, I, didn't, I had no idea who this guy was. Um, and now putting this together with all the other evidence, um, this, is, this is quite clearly, or very probably, a modern forgery. In his book, Veritas, Sabar explores how a world-renowned professor was duped into believing the document was authentic. The tricky thing about Walter Fritz is that he's very good at sort of getting, trying to get you to believe that something is true. But then when you actually go check it or in the real world, it, it all falls to pieces. So Walter Fritz's stories hold up so long as you don't check them. And the reason, and that's why Karen King was fooled. In Veritas, published in 2020, Sabar delves into Fritz's complicated past, who's seen here in the late 80s. Sabar explores what may have motivated Fritz to give Professor King the forged papyrus. Sabar also learned that Fritz was an internet pornographer who faked having a degree in Egyptology from a university in Berlin. In reality, he dropped out of school after being accused of plagiarizing a paper. So there might also be a motivation of a, of a gentleman who believes he's smarter. He always deserved to be a great Egyptologist, but was denied that opportunity, and now is going to show up the field with a fake that's going to that's going to dupe some of the smartest people in the field. Fritz has denied forging the Gospel of Jesus's wife. Still, many religious scholars maintain the papyrus is a fake. During his reporting, Sabar learned that King initially suspected the papyrus was not authentic. She basically says, I'm not, I don't want to touch this thing. Um, and then four months later, there's this 180 degree turn where she completely changes her mind. What changed during those four months? Well, Sabar found out the then president of Harvard announced an investigation that threatened the future of the Divinity School. Two days later, King told Fritz she wanted his papyrus. I asked Karen King to comment on the timing, on the fact that two days after receiving this email saying, you're going to come under a microscope, um, she suddenly goes back to a gentleman she had written off and says, I'd love to publish your papyrus. Um, she never responded. She didn't respond to that question. We've reached out to King for comment, but have not heard back. Do you believe Dr. King intentionally misled the public about the authenticity of the papyrus? I, I mean, uh, that's a really complicated question, and I think, we, I think people should read the book. I think intentionally, in the idea that I'm going to, um, I, know th I absolutely know this is a fake, and I'm going to see if I can fool everybody, I don't think that's the case. Um, I do think that she had substantial doubts about its authenticity. And my reporting shows, in my opinion, um, she was willing to see um, how far um, she could sort of push this into the public sphere before serious questions were raised about it. Including questions by Sabar. For instance, why was King allowed to publish an article in the Harvard Theological Review back in 2014 about the papyrus that did not meet the journal's requirements? Nearly eight years later, the journal still has not retracted the article. When we reached out to Harvard for comment, the university sent us a 2016 statement 
which reads in part, acceptance of an essay for publication means that it has successfully passed through the review process. It does not mean that the journal agrees with the claims of the paper. But, Sabar says, it did not pass peer review. Why hasn't the Harvard Theological Review retracted um, an article that failed peer review, that relied on fake evidence, that its own author has, has, has distanced herself from, um, and that uh, uh, was essentially co-authored by scientists with deep, undisclosed conflicts of interest. And why would a respected scholar risk her career over a fragment from a man she didn't know? Karen King saw this papyrus, and she told me as much in one of our interviews. She said, what this papyrus will do, it's too small to, you know, private, it's too small to really say a whole lot, but what this papyrus will do is it will get people talking. It will, it will start a discussion um, about what we think we know about early Christianity. And for her, that was the most important thing. I think it was more important than her career. What's the larger takeaway that you want people to get from this book? I think the truth matters, the facts matter. But the truth about whether Jesus was ever married has been the stuff of Hollywood for many years. Who is she? My dear, that's Mary Magdalene. The prostitute? She was no such thing. Smeared by the church in 591 Anno Domino Mary Magdalene was Jesus' wife. While movie directors, writers, and religious scholars continue to argue whether Jesus was married, Sabar says public perception that Jesus was a celibate bachelor has remained the same for centuries. If you ask a man on the street, woman on the street, that's what they'll tell you. Jesus didn't, didn't have a wife. But if you actually look at the New Testament itself, it doesn't say anything about whether Jesus was married. It doesn't say he was married, but it also doesn't say he was unmarried. You actually have to look at the text and then history and argue from it. Other passages of the New Testament talk, use metaphor to talk about the church as the, as the bride of Jesus. Well, if the church is the bride of Jesus, how could he have had an earthly wife? It doesn't make sense. On the other hand, um, the people who say, well, Jesus probably was married, they will say, well, look, Jesus was a Jew, and the Hebrew Bible blesses marriage and, and orders the Jews to be fruitful and multiply. It was just standard for every Jewish male, certainly a Jewish rabbi, to have been married. That was the, everyone, everyone in that day was. So if Jesus was such, was, was such a striking exception to the rule, wouldn't the gospel writers have mentioned it? Wouldn't it have been such a dramatic break that someone writing the text of the New Testament would have said, oh, and by the way, Jesus, unlike the rest of the Jewish community, he was unmarried. Um, so th that, that's what, and so there's this, there's this really the silence into which um, authors, theologians, filmmakers, and even forgers have inserted their own vision of whether Jesus might have been married. One of the questions that readers will ask themselves as they're reading your book is, ultimately, does it matter whether Jesus was celibate? I think it matters. I think if you ask um, scholars, they'll say, well, it matters for, for whether, it um, uh, matters for women's leadership in the church. Can, can women be ordained priests um, in, in the Catholic faith? Um, it matters for whether sexuality is inherently sinful, whether the mere act of, of feelings of sexuality are by their very nature sinful because there's been a long tradition in, in Christianity of sort of shaming women, for even for men's desire, like it's, it's women's fault that men stray. And then also for the all-male priesthood. I mean, it, it, has, it, has, it has very much has rel relevance. 
Rhode Island PBS Weekly has made multiple requests to Walter Fritz for comment. To date, we have not received a response. And that's our broadcast for this evening. I'm Pamela Watts. And I'm David Wright. We'll be back next week with another edition of Rhode Island PBS Weekly. Until then, you can visit us online to see all our stories and past episodes at ripbs.org weekly. Or listen to our podcast available on all your favorite audio streaming platforms. Thanks for joining us. Good night.